Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I want to first thank all of you who have communicated to me and sent emails to me and provided me input. And I want to let you know I appreciate that. You know, this podcast is designed for us to learn. So if there's ever questions that come to your mind that I'm not thinking about that would be great for all of us to explore, please email me those suggestions at president at torchweb.org. And what I'll do for you doing that for us is I'll dedicate that episode in your merit. Today, I want to address the question of what is Torah? Because I know for me, when I first learned about the divinity of Torah and became certain and knew that was so true, the next step I took was to begin studying Torah. And what I knew about Torah was that I had seen a Torah scroll. I knew there was the Chumash, the five books of Moses. So I ordered a copy and I began to read. And I knew we were supposed to study a certain portion every week. And so that first week's Torah portion was the Parsha Noach. So I began to read. And quite frankly, I was not getting this. Where are these deep insights? I'm not seeing them. I read about when the ark landed on dry land that Noah got off, he planted a vineyard, and then when he harvested the vineyard, he made wine. And from my simple view, I could just understand that after being on an ark for over a year with family and livestock, that the first thing you'd want to do is get your drink on. I can relate to that because I had just come back from a three-day trip to Florida to take my family, my wife, my daughter, my in-laws, and my young nephew to Disney World. And I knew after that three-day journey with everyone in a small minivan, I was more than ready as soon as we got to the hotel to get to the bar. But I knew God was trying to tell me a much deeper message than that. And then you get to the part where Ham walks in and sees Noah, who had passed out. He sees him unclothed. And Noah wakes up and comes out, and he curses Ham's descendants. And you're thinking, that seems like quite a bit of an overreaction. What am I missing here? This was obviously leaving a lot out of the story. And I knew there was something more I was supposed to be grasping out of this Torah that I was now aware had come straight from the heavens. So I went online and I found commentary at a website, Chabad.org. And when I read this commentary, it came to life. I was seeing so many multiple layers beyond that text that I was reading. So many deep insights And when I was looking at where these insights coming from, because they're not what I read, in the text itself, it was coming from all these various sources, one of them being the Midrash. And there it discloses that the reason Noah came out and cursed Ham's descendants is because Ham had castrated Noah. And I'm thinking, that seems like a pretty vital piece of information that would be included in the story. But it wasn't. There's obviously a reason for that. And I found all these much deeper insights as well. And when I looked at the sources, they came from places called the Mishnah Torah, the Zohar, 
And I was beginning now to understand a little bit more what Torah is. The written Torah is definitely not a history book by any means. There is this narrative taking place throughout the Torah, but it's written in a way to be encrypted. There's more wisdom beyond that narrative. And when you read the written Torah, when it talks about the giving of the Torah, it talks about a national revelation where the Jewish people heard the first two mitzvot. It talks about Moses going up to get the first tablets, discovers the sin of the golden calf, breaks them, 40 days later, goes up again, spends 40 days up there learning all of Torah, comes down, and spends the next 40 years in wilderness in a tent of meeting where God's presence would dwell on the tent through the clouds of glory, and he would disseminate all this information, these laws to the Jewish people on how to create this utopian society. To create a society where we conducted ourselves like the angels, but became much more elevated than the angels because we were doing it in the avatar of a body and a physical being with free will. And so the question is, why did God write the Torah this way? And I think there are two reasons. One is he wanted the Jew to have to take the initiative to look past that clothing of Torah, the, the historical narrative, and drill in and find truth. He had to leave some free will in place. And God knew that the Greeks would force us to translate the Torah into their language, allowing it to one day be disseminated and taken hold of by so many other religions. And so he needed to lock it up, to encrypt it, so the truth behind that text would be held for us. And now we have the oral Torah, which has been redacted, has been written down. We have the Mishnah Torah. We have all the debates and conversations around that Mishnah that we call Talmud or an Aramaic Gemara. And even in that text, even in the Gemara that I've been studying with Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, one of my new endeavors in Torah learning, he'll even point out to the class when you get to a certain text, that he'll say, that text, there's something behind it. You can tell the way it's written. Because the sages in their deep wisdom were locking in Kabbalistic insights into that text. And if you are at that level, you can peel back those levels, which are like doorways to a wormhole that you can go in and study for years. And there's even more, even more depth to the tour than we can even comprehend. But I want to back up for a little bit. When you look at the story of creation, there are two verses talking about God creating man. And when you read a text called Sefer Yetzirah, which is text, wisdom that was brought down from Abraham, it explains that those two periods were two different creations of man with a space in between of 40,000 years. The first man did not have a neshama. It had a nephesh, that level of the soul that resides in the body like all animals. But the neshama is different. You know, when you think about a black hole, there's an event horizon, and it is a point in space that where anything gets within that area, it draws into the black hole and becomes part of it. And that is analogous to God. At a certain point, we just absorb into God, but right outside of that event horizon, it's where our neshamas come from. And they 
pull down through all the various worlds and reside in our body, connecting the highest of all realms, higher than the angels, all the way down into this world. And this is why time begins when Adam was the first man to have a neshama. That's when God starts having us count time. Why? Because creation before them was part of creation that God did by himself. And what he wanted us to track is the part of creation where we did it as his helpers, as co-creators in the world. And so what that means is that the story of creation started when Adam got a neshama and it is continuing to this day, meaning we are living in the story of creation. We are living within the Torah. And that must mean that everything that has taken place since then is in the Torah. And the truth is, all the most notable events that have occurred throughout history are in the Torah. This is something I would like to do, God willing, as its own separate episode. But what God did was he created text within the text through what is called Torah code by having words with letter skips throughout the text. You will find text with the letter skips talking about Maimonides, about all the notable events throughout history, even up to the present. There is a lot written in the Torah codes on the year 5780 and 5781 that talk about coronavirus, coming a Mashiach, all this is in there. As you can see, the, the Torah has a tremendous amount of depth to it. And when you think about the fact that in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew letters are also numbers. So Aleph is one, Bet is two, and so on. So when you look at the Torah, it's also a sequence of numbers. So as you can see, the Torah is, has a very similar construct to us. We have a body. We have a soul. The Torah has a body. The Torah has a soul. And I brought someone on that I have not brought on before to really help us delve into this subject a little more. As you know, I recently moved into a Jewish community and my very first Shabbos, that morning there was someone there teaching Tanya, a book I had started studying on my own back in isolation in the suburbs of Houston. But when he was teaching it, he really brought out a lot of deep concepts there, really helped explain it in a way I could understand. And we've gotten to know each other. I'm looking forward to continue to learn from him. The gentleman I have with me is a rabbi. doesn't go by rabbi. I'm finding that everyone around here is my rabbi to some degree. His name is Rabbi Daniel Cutler. And I could tell from talking with him that he would be someone to really help expand our understanding of what we mean when we say the the soul of Torah. So welcome, Daniel. I appreciate you coming on with us. Thank you so much, Dan. It's an honor, and I'm excited for our conversation. Excellent. You know, I like to always give a little bit of a background to the people I have on here, and I would love if you to sort of share your background with us. Wonderful. Well, first of all, I'm not an experienced podcaster, so you're going to get the real, you know, blemishes and all in the conversation. I'm a third-generation Houstonian. My parents, my grandparents were born here. My parents were always spiritual and had connection to Judaism, but kind of over the generations, observance has kind of dwindled. 
My parents met Rabbi Lazaroff, the Chabad rabbi who was sent here by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the early 70s. And it just clicked. They started going to classes and became more observant and did very slowly, little by little, you know, a little uh, keeping some kosher in the, you know, in the house, not out of the house, all that kind of stuff. Throughout my childhood, as I was growing up, I went through, I remember when we stopped driving on Shabbos and things like that. And I went to yeshiva out of town and the first of my family to go to yeshiva for a few generations. Came back to Houston and I went to school and business school here. And I did become a rabbi. It wasn't vocation, but rather uh, it was it's something that you see a lot in some communities to get just the background. So we have a foundation before getting married and before beginning your, your rest of your world. Kind of like when you start the day, you start the day with a strong Jewish note. And that way you, you do the same thing on a macro level. That's the idea. Came to Houston and, and I've just been doing marketing and e-commerce was involved in a large window blinds company that we sold. And I've been, uh, since then, I've been doing a lot of startup work. Excellent. You know, it's interesting. I had a guy out here today measuring the windows to put new blinds in throughout the home. Speaking of blinds, he asked me like how long this Jewish community has been here because he said he grew up not far from here. And now he's been coming back out here. There's a lot of clients out here. He said, how long has this Jewish community been here? And I said, that's a great question. I don't know. I didn't even know any Orthodox Jews until six years ago. So you've been here for quite some time. I'm curious to know a little bit about this, this area. Yeah, it's been a, it's a remarkable transformation. Or Certainly growing up, it wasn't quite as vibrant. You know, there were Jews in Houston, but uh, as far as a traditional community, there was something, I think, United Orthodox or the earlier iteration of it was, was here. But it was pretty small, as far as I understand it. And beginning then, 1970, there's just been um, a lot of shoals opened up. And now, I mean, the streets are just, you wouldn't even know you're not in New York. It's really nice. I think we're very fortunate to have a nice balance of not extreme urban conditions. It's, it's a unique place here in Houston. I'm curious to know, like now, for me, it's just all these kosher restaurants, like there was no kosher restaurant option up in Kingwood. Mm-hmm. You know, all the grocery stores, well, the kosher sections are available. Everything's so readily available. I'm sure there was a lot more challenging probably for your parents, I'm sure, beginning their observance without probably a lot of the, the infrastructure in place to support a Jewish community. Definitely. Definitely. It's, uh, it's easier now. And it seems, it seems like you've got whatever you need, you know, different kinds of synagogues and different kinds of food. Food is available for me personally, there's some who believe that it can be challenging in a business environment. And I can see why, you know, like going to school or at work when you have limited vacation days, you know, trying to negotiate with the holidays can be difficult or coming in and people knowing you're not going to answer the phone on Saturday at all, no matter what. You know, and there's maybe some concern of anti-Semitism where, you know, if you're overtly Jewish like that, if you look Jewish. And I always found... I just feel very blessed and like it, it worked out. I felt like a marketing advantage to be the person who in my field, Oh, that's the, that's the Jewish, you know, tech marketing guy. And so for me, it felt like an advantage, but whether people assume certain value set because you have a, uh, you know, that you keep to certain religious principles and then also just makes you memorable. So I didn't feel like I give up anything for, to be able to be religious. So I remember a story. There was a, it was a couple, a lawyer couple here in town, the Nelkins, Carol Nelkin and Stuart Nelkin. Stuart's passed away. Carol's still here. And they were some of the early members of the Chabad community in Houston and friends of my parents. 
very power lawyer couple. And he, after his whole life not keeping Shabbos, he decided he was going to do it. And that week, this potential client came that could have been life-changing for him. And said, so I need some work over, you know, over the weekend. And uh, he talked to him. He says, I, I can't do it. But actually, I think he first he called the rabbi and he said, okay, I'll just start next week, right? I mean, it just, I, mean I haven't done it forever. What's it? I haven't done anything. I'll just start next week. He's like, you made this decision, et cetera. And it was the hardest thing he ever. And then the entire Shabbos, many, many times the phone kept ringing. Overall, 10, 15, 20 times ringing because the guy was testing him. He didn't know. And afterwards, he said, I'm ready to go with you because I see you actually care about what when you make a promise, you mean it. And it turned out for the positive. Two things I add at one is when you're in those moments, it really instills, it makes it visceral, it makes it real, where you know and you're doing it with all your body that God controls all your material wealth and possessions, how much you have, how much you get. And when you take that action, it just it's it strengthens your amuna. But I will say, too, that you know, I know there's a Torah verse that when, when we are true to who we are, the other nations respect us. You know, when, when we make God's will, our will, he opens the hearts to other people. And I had a guy that talking to a lot, and he was complaining about me not showing up to those conferences anymore. And he basically went on to say, you know, if you don't have enough respect for my organization to attend our conferences, then why should I be even be talking to you? And I said, look, the reason is, is because I, I'm a Jew and that's Shabbat. And I don't work on that day. I go, I don't care if you were going to offer me $10 million to show up. I don't work on that day. And everything switched to where he said, I totally respect that. And then every time we would talk, he would say, he was a Christian. He would say, I tell all my friends every time. It's like the Jews know how to do the Sabbath. And he talks about it all the time. And he's the, the nicest guy in the world to me. And that changed everything by me saying, why well, will not show up to your conference for any reason whatsoever? All right, so let's get into this topic. I started talking about in the beginning about how Chabad, the commentary, the way they brought to life Torah, they sort of brought in that Kabbalistic ideas in a way that a little guy like me could understand. I mean, it felt like I needed someone just to take tour all the complex ideas and mash it in like baby food and, and gently put it in my mouth so I could digest it, understand it. And you've grown up in the Chabad world. You've studied a lot of Hasidic philosophy. And I wonder if you could just share with the audience the Hasidicism overall, the, where it came from, the growth, and the contribution it's made to the Torah world overall. Sure, I'd love to. I'd love to give it a shot. I think it's important to look at a little of the history of, of Judaism in the lead-up to the advent of the Hasidic movement. 15, 1600s were a very difficult time for the Jewish people. You had pogroms, you had a false hopes of Messiah come and go, and we were kind of on the ropes. There was a class within the Jewish people that was, was going very strong, and, and the scholars, uh, the yeshiva world... Well, it maintained its strength and probably entrenched, uh, retrenched into more eternal uh, strength and, and study, but kind of moved out of the mainstream of the world and the Jewish world. And you had the massive amounts of Jewish people left on the side. And not only were they, many of them illiterate, but they're also financially in, in dire straits. The combination of the chaos of war and pogroms and urbanization, so a lot of them were living in uh, just not great conditions. And it was just enough to survive, much less study or learn. On top of that, 
because that was happening, you had a polarization. And so all these people felt like they weren't worth, worth anything as Jewish people. They didn't have the, the scholarship. They didn't have money. They didn't, uh, and, and they felt completely left out and they were just losing their identity. So it was kind of like the, there was a deep, like almost like a coma we were going into as a people. Into this picture, you have the Baal Shem Tov, is the is known as the founder of the Hasidic movement. Now, there was groups of people who had learned the secret parts or the soul of the Torah for thousands of years. And our tradition and the tradition in general is that all of the things that are in the Torah that we discover later or the, th- the elements that come to light over the c- a few thousand years were embedded within it to be discovered from the very beginning on Har Sinai. And there are books in, you know, the Zohar sourced back to the times of the Mishnah, which is as a founding Kabbalah book. However, it was always small, very uh, secret communities and the, the, uh, the elite and, and very holy people. What started to change is that around the 1600s and, and the Baal Shem Tov was born, I think 1698. In the middle of 1600s, the, uh, there were groups of people who went around called the Nistarim or hidden ones, or uh, they're Hasidim, you could say who believed in their sole purpose was to bring enthusiasm and life and light to, to the Jewish people. And they went around dressed as common commoners, uh, and they took jobs like blacksmiths or just simple people. But really, they were very well educated, and they just wanted to go and, and inspire somebody to make a minion in their house or to learn Aleph Bays with their children. And so it was the original kind of outreach that it started and, and their main message, and uh, especially when the Baal Shem Tov, and there's, you know, his, his life is in a very interesting story too. His father told him he was an orphan and he, he uh, at five years old, his father told him, fear no one except God and love every Jew. That was the messages he lived with. And so they were all about giving uh, life and light to, uh, to, so that every, you know, everyone has an ishama. Even if somebody doesn't look like they're super special and educated and sparkling, that's just because there's a cover of, uh, you know, it's, it's not fair. Circumstances have led him or, or his own, you know, problems have led him to a certain place. But under that, you can dig and you can find a, a, a gem, a diamond inside a coarse covering. And so it was all about finding, uh, inspiring the specialness and, the, um, and holiness inside of every single person's neshama. So it sounds like this was like the birth also of Jewish outreach because it seems like that was not happening before. You had the the impoverished, the uneducated. You had those that were educated and they weren't reaching out and spreading Torah wisdom to those that didn't have access to it. Or was it just a geographic separation that prohibited that from happening? I think it was more the former. It's hard to say something started at one given point. You could say in the time that we're talking about, I'd say it was more... It certainly represented a shift. You had uh, people were living in the same geographic areas had nothing to do with each other, and so this started to change. Um, so you, you have the, the study of the inner parts of the Torah, and also making it accessible to the common person, as opposed to being this this impossible coded information. So the bringing the soul of the Torah and helping to reveal the inner the, the essence of the Torah with the essence of a of our neshama, our soul. Finally, I'd say the last thing that rep- that marks the Baal Shem Tov's approach was joy. So finding ways to like to bring joy and life into our service of God, and not just do the things. You know, uh, we're famous. In, you know, Judaism is 
definitely a religion of action. And he says in the, in the, in the Talmud, Hamaisu Iker, that action is the main thing. So having said that, you can, get, you can forget about the other things. And in, in the book of Tanya, which is something that the Balshamtov student student wrote, the action we do is like we've created a, a bird, but without wings, the bird doesn't fly. And the wings are the, the joy and the, and the awe that we put into our service of God. And, and that's the things that, that was emphasized by the Hasidic movement in the early, in the 16 and 1700s. You know, as you were just talking, it, something that I th- thought about based off this body-soul analogy, it's almost like doing a mitzvah has a body and a soul. Because you can get in just this habit of, for instance, whatever it may be, just going through the action, this is what I'm supposed to do, but... If it becomes robotic and habitual, or even maybe in the beginning a chore, you know, the soul to it, the joy to it, the knowing why this is important, why this is going to draw me closer to God, it, it becomes more challenging. It's like, that's what I loved about what I was learning from Chabad and the Hasidic movements and those teachers and Rabbi Nachman and the Baal Shev Tov was it just brought more enthusiasm and soul, if you will, to fulfilling the mitzvot a hundred percent that's a great analogy and i think that in order to have like if somebody gives you a job and you just do the job it's okay it's an important person gave you the job but if you understand if you start to understand why what the job does and how you're changing the world with that job then you care then you bring your life into it and you bring passion into it and that's why that's the connection with study of the inner parts of the torah and understanding the reason for mitzvahs. Of course, we don't ever understand and approach the ultimate reason that's God's will that this and this happen. But by studying the Torah, we kind of put on over time the lens glasses that is sort of God's intention for what the world should be is written into the encoded into the Torah. Study it, we start to understand what should be. The world is what it is, and we're here to make it what it should be. Uh, we were brought into a wonderful world that could be a garden, not a jungle like like you could look around and say, oh, it's a jungle. It's really, it's a wonderful place. And here we're, we're there to make it so. I've heard people say with regard to parenting, they don't, don't tell them what to do. In other words, they're not going to do what you tell them to do. They're going to do what you do. They'll watch what you do. But I've heard it, uh, I, another version of that. They're not going to do what you tell them to do. And they're not even going to do what you do. They're going to do what you love. So, for example, somebody goes through life begrudgingly checking the box on something that that they feel they have an obligation towards it doesn't mean their kids are going to do it maybe it'll run the other way because they saw their father struggled their mothers dealt with something the whole time not to say you shouldn't do things that are hard you should still do them but i think bringing in the life to it and loving it and finding a way to love this i think is is really what creates continuity yeah because if you think about it every jew alive today had what we would call today orthodox jewish with its grandparents great-grandparents great-great-grandparents at some point you know everyone was a torah observant jew and my theory which it sounds like what you just said may lend to that was it became this gradual process where people didn't know they knew how to do mitzvot they didn't know the why they didn't have joy in it and the kids saw that and didn't see the the reason why they should do it. They didn't see it bringing any joy to their parents. And that sort of led to this gradual decline to where a lot of us became very secular and and, and moved away from Torah observant life over time. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. You know, one of the reasons 
that I wanted to have you on is because Simcha Torah is this Sunday. And I've been wanting to, I've been talking to Daniel for quite some time about coming on and talking with me. I thought this week would be perfect because this is the time to celebrate Torah. And not to get you too sidetracked, but I would love for you to also share insights into this holiday and how this all really ties together. Because what I understand, this is my first time to experience this holiday with other Jews. I don't think you can get as much joy when you're sitting by yourself in your home. So I'm excited about this Sunday. But yeah, share your insights on this this holiday and what it's about. And this will be a unique one this year because uh, because of everything going on in the world, which is, of course, meant to be. And so a lot of people might cel- be celebrating it alone or uh, not be able to, quote, dance with the Torah. But I've seen some great material online for how to have a great Simchas Torah at home alone. You don't have to this year. I was reading something last week uh, on the question of why Simchas Torah, this holiday, was established now at the end of Sukkot. There are, you know, there are certain holidays that are written into the Torah, the, the, the written Torah, like when Pesach is or when Sukkot is. Okay? But Simchas Torah is not written into the Torah that way. We have the last day of Sukkot known as Shemini Yatzeris. Then we come to Simchas Torah, but why Simchas Torah now? So... If you remember, there's a holiday a few months ago we just celebrated Shavuos, the holiday of the giving of the Torah, Matan Torah. And why not celebrate and have a great celebration then? The answer on the revealed part of the Torah is that the, we don't do that because we don't finish the Torah then. We, t- we finish the Torah now. That's what we just finished uh, the t- this week. We'll be reading the very last portion of the Torah and we'll start it over again. Hopefully even better than last year. But... You could just ask one question deeper. Well, why did we start? Why did we start reading the Torah now instead of Shavuos? And you have to go back to the beginning there when the Torah was given. And the Medrash says that the Torah was given, and we know that when you mentioned the stories of the Torah, the, the written Torah, well, that was given along with the first tablets, the Luchos. And then we messed up. After that, there's the story of the golden calf. We fell down a level. And we, as a nation, first time we did tshuva, we came back and returned. And, and then we got the second tablets. And the second tablets, accompanying them, was all of the verbal, all the oral tradition, with all the medrash and, and all the things that we're going to discover later. So to look at it, the first tablets and, the, and shavuos represents what we were given. But then we go through a whole process of tshuva, of, of failing, and then tshuva. We come back, then we are ready for Simchas Torah. And Simchas Torah is not a celebration of receiving the Torah. It's a celebration of us finishing the Torah. It's of, it's of us, our own accomplishments in Torah. One, one other difference between them is it's one thing, you know, when you're given a gift, it's not as joyful as when you've earned, you worked it. You work for it, and now it's something that's yours, and you've made it. Uh, you know, it's your own tradition, and it's your own discovery, and our and, and our ability to discover and apply and 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 make Torah ours is what we're celebrating on Simchas Torah, and also is why it is the way we can connect to the Torah, not as a tzaddik, but as a balchuva, not as somebody who's straight, fresh, never has had any problems like the Jewish people were in theory in, in Shavuos, but after our failing and after re- reconnecting and strengthening the bond even stronger than before, it's the same story there. At Tzaddik, it's kind of like 
Well, it's kind of it's easy, right? We look at somebody who's never had any challenges and we say, all right, well, fair enough for them. What about those who struggled? What about the, that? Uh, the, the joy that we get after returning to our real meaning and to ourselves and to our soul through Torah the second time or after a, a problem is a greater joy. And that's what Simchas Torah is now. So th- that's why, like on Shavuos, the tradition is to stay up all night long studying and learning. From what I understand, on Simcha Torah, it's more about joy That's and right. dancing. And being the feet to the Torah. So the Torah is, needs us to, to give it legs. And, to, and, and that's what we were doing literally on Simcha's Torah, dancing, holding a Torah. So I mentioned in the intro that when I was first learning Torah and I read that the Torah is a blueprint for creation, I always found that very strange because you would think the Torah would open up and be a bunch of schematics, you know, and if it's a law book, why not arrange it as a manual with clear headers and making everything easy to find? The written Torah is embedded in a narrative. And I would love to know your insights for why God built the Torah the way he did, why he disseminated part written, part oral, and, and all those facets. Any insights you can share with us, I'm sure the audience and myself would be very appreciative. Well, that question is a great question. It's the same question that was brought up by the famous commentary Rashi. So he brings a question from one of the sages saying, why does the Torah begin with a narrative instead of from the first laws of the Torah, which happens to be the laws of Pesach? And when the Jews are preparing to leave Egypt and setting up the Jewish calendar, which is an important first mitzvah because we're sanctifying time itself and we start everything there. Well, why not start from there? Why the narrative? And if it's a narrative, it's not everything. It's selected pieces here and there. And not everything is always in chronological order. The answer on a surface level was, There will come a time when people will try and take away our land of Israel. And we have to be able to describe and say, look, the Torah describes the history of the the world. And in that is how the land of Israel used to belong to other nations and God engineered events such that now that we have it. And so, look, it's written in the Torah and it gives us the power to answer. That's the revealed part of the Torah. But there's there's a wonderful inner explanation of this that I read from, from the Babacha Rebbe, that what we're talking here about is giving, getting the power to influence the world. If the Torah had been something separate, it was just a law book, and wouldn't, didn't describe world events, we wouldn't have the world as it exists inside the Torah as an anchor. In other words, the world and Torah are not separate. The world is the state of things that we are supposed to repair with the Torah. And so the Torah acknowledges the state of the world and gives us this history and shows us how it all developed, the parts that we need to understand in order to influence the world. Our goal is to make the world into a, a, a world with a Torah perspective. And to, to know that, we have to see how the world was in the, in the eyes of the Torah. That's a little philosophical. But another, another thing to understand is that when we speak about the Torah, there's so much that's not the five books of Moses that is the 387,000 characters that make up the, or so that make up the letters that make up the written five books of Moses, the Torah. What we're studying is when you start, there's a wonderful Mishnah called Pirkei Avot, 
I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know about it, the ethics of our fathers. And in the beginning, it goes through the chain of tradition from Sinai until the Talmud. And this is actually expanded upon by Maimonides, the Rambam, when he goes through uh, his, in his introduction to the Mishnah. And we see every single person who handed it off during the worst of times and the best of times while running away from Romans or while, while teaching in large academies in, Bab- in, in, in Babylon. All of this is Torah. Torah is there. It's, it's, like a, it's like a seed that can be developed into a tree. And it's got everything encoded into it for us to then discover, read this, the sages of the last thousands of years, and not only get a lesson on uh, practical things, but philosophical things, the nature of our soul, the nature of our relationship with the world, and the purpose of it all, which is to bring the world to a place that's a, a world that's in line with what God wants, would ultimately leading to the, the, the era of Mashiach. No, and as you were talking, I was just sort of thinking, too, about if he just laid out schematics and said, okay, here's how the world works, and here's what you need to do, that is devoid of the what he wants us to do with this world, which he wants us, like you said, to complete it, to bring about Mashiach in that era. And if you look at like that timeline of, you know, probably back further than this, but even just from the Exodus through Moses dying and the people about to enter Israel, that, that timeline, that, that journey is sort of like the overall timeline of the world at large, you know, with, with going into Israel being, Maybe Olamaba. It's our own little spiritual journey through our, our lives, right? So uh, the more you were speaking, the more I, I think that, that, that it is almost a schematic. It's just layered into that, that narrative. So, so, so it has all those multiple layers to it. That's right. I think so much in the Torah is also fractal in nature. And that's a mathematical term that seems that, that says that no, matter what, what, no matter what magnification you look at it, it looks the same. You see this pattern, and maybe it's a pattern of you, of, of you talked about entering the land, okay? That's a story that happened, of course. The Jewish people, after an incubation period in the desert, entered the land of Israel and started to turn it from this, you know, wild, terrible place where people were cannibalization, all kinds of crazy stuff going on there, into what would be the, the prototype for what we should live like and, you know, in the future. But we have that. You have that kind of on the the idea of our um, of entering the world as like the soul coming into the body and turn in transforming the, our character traits into being good things. We've got that, so we've got that on not only a macro history level, you've got it on a micro person level, and you've got it every single day. You've got so you can see patterns and holidays are like that. It's really that's a, a fun area to look into in and in the Torah. If you look at the big picture. And look what's been accomplished in 3,300 years since the Torah was given. What kind of world it is. And if we just had a long time scale, um, we would, and you say, wow, it's remarkable. Like the influence indirect that the Jewish people have had in the world. And, and pick any number you want to look at. Violence per capita. How much it's lower than today. No matter what you see in the news. Then... 50, 100, 1,000, you know, uh, years ago. Literacy, starvation. There's so many aspects. And we, we are transforming. The world is getting a better place. We're approaching it. And we're approaching um, the age 
where you know the 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 age of Mashiach, but there's so much surface churning and and trauma that we don't see under the surface and see the deep trends that are helping moving us towards the right place. All all through the influence of the, of the Jewish people throughout much of the time, unable to directly influence the world because we were mostly running away or trying to run and trying to hide and hide, um, not be bothered. But more recently, through direct influence and, you know, not through trying to convert, but basically living our values. You said something the other day when you were teaching Tanya that I found myself thinking about all week. Because when you look at the purpose of the world is to bring more godliness to every aspect, every corner of the world. But when you look at the spiritual stature of the Jewish people, going from Moses you know, and then looking at the, the sages of yesteryear that knew such amazing deep insights and were on such like lofty, their consciousness, I don't even think was in this world. And even the greats today, they know that they aren't even close in comparison to the generation before, and they weren't close in comparison to the generation before, all the way back to Moses. So it's like we've been in this spiritual decline since Mount Sinai. However, when you look at the rest of the world from when Torah was given, like you said, cannibalism, like the, the people that occupied Canaan, you know, that Israel, child sacrifice was the norm. You know, when Abraham lied and said Sarah was his sister, it was because he knew that adultery was looked down on. But murdering someone, no big deal. So murder the guy, <laughs> then you can have his wife. The sexual immorality, everything like that was so bad. And sexual immorality is probably so bad in the world. However, you look at like every country, majority of people want a law-abiding world. Yeah. They want courts. They want to have laws against murder and theft. And, and all these things, they, have, you know, they basically are fulfilling the majority of the Noah laws. That's right. And where did that come from? came from... Us. It's almost like it's been diffusing with us and going out to the rest of the world. Now we got to pull it back. That's a mixed us. view, <laughs> but it's a, it's a very incisive. I think that there's a there's a really a, a, a dual edged story with how we stand. It's kind of a mixed bag that story because on one hand, on one hand, hundred uh, percent right, we're not near anything near the spiritual stature of the previous generations. But on the other hand, that itself means that there's something to respect about this generation where we don't have obvious scholarship that matches prior. We don't have the pres- the feeling of the presence of God around. And, and we certainly don't have obvious any miracles or any evidence like that they would just in our face in the same way the prior generations would. And yet, after 2,000 years of being exiled from our land, without obvious great spiritual leadership, we're still doing this. We're doing that. And, and so in, on one hand, we're lower. And on the other hand, we're doing something that not necessarily could other generations have done in, in bringing the message of the Torah to a world like this with no leadership at the very end. It's like, so after all the previous generations, they were giants, but they couldn't quite get to the last finish, last step in the finish line. And we're standing on their, on their shoulders and we can actually bring it across the line and see what's above the fence. So anything that we did wrong over the ages it has a very limited time, but any good stacks up. And so we're building on all the good and we're finally getting to kind of uh, the, the end of all that. It's like maybe today somebody is not the greatest um, technologist, 
but he has all the tools and computers and everything. And, and so you can do a lot more now, you know, with, with tech than somebody else before without it. Sim, same thing as well with, we're building on the work of the pre- previous generations and at a time, especially when, when there's no obvious leadership in the same way as we had in prior generations. You know, there's always been a, a Torah idea that we're supposed to being, bring Torah and godliness to every aspect of the world. And but I never really thought through what does that mean? Does that mean we need to like, you know, go crawl into some dark cave and shine a flashlight and study Torah there or go into some deep jungle? I don't think that's what that's saying now. I think what it's saying is over time, as God has concealed himself more from providing us manna from the heavens. And now it's like this huge, complex global economy. Yeah. We're ACHing money around yeah. and trading services and all this stuff. All that complexity is like created these layers of concealment. So he's hidden. And you're right. When we in this deep layer of concealment are still doing it, that is bringing it to the darkest corners of the world. And in, in I think in this era, I think there's something to that. Yeah. In the language of Kabbalah, there are sparks that are entrapped inside of material things. And we go around our lives gathering and elevating those sparks Finding the purpose, the why, the godliness in everything, finding it inside a job, inside of a, you know, technology, why is the internet around? What can we do with it that's good? And even things that were, that look like they could cause a lot of trouble. There are things that are impossible for us to elevate, perhaps out of our reach. The things that we are given in our lives, we have access to our own human animal that we all, now I'm going to do a little Tanya for you. Because so the psychological model that Tanya describes is that we have two souls in us and we've got the animal soul and then we've got the godly soul. And because we're, we're a human animal and it's, it's not evil or bad. It's just an animal and it wants self-preservation, self-propagation and ultimately self. That's what the definition of the animal is. And then, and then we are perfectly paired with a godly soul who can work and elevate this animal and make it something something great. And the soul doesn't need anything. The soul is pure and holy. It's not for the purpose of the soul. It's for the soul is sent here to fix and to elevate that animal, starting with the with our own selves. And that's why we should never feel lost or despondent about having certain tendencies or, you know, having issues that we have to grapple with, because that was what we were given to work on. And it's evidence that we can do it if we have that situation. So starting with ourselves, we work the sparks within our animal and then beyond it, our sphere of influence. What is our family obligations and our, our job and our community? And I guess the more successful that we are at bringing about the purpose of something, the more God will send us those things, more things. Like if you give a good exchange rate, between one currency and another, people will come and bring you that currency to, to do more of it. So like, much like the, uh, I'm going to do, the, this is my analogy I always think of. Einstein told us there's an exchange rate between matter and energy. And that exchange rate is C squared, the speed of light squared, you know, energy is, so if you have a little bit of matter, you can create a tremendous amount of energy. And if you have a little bit of, if you have a ton of energy, you can create a little matter. Well, that's, there's also that between material and spiritual, there's an equation and there's energy that we can out of material good we can create spiritual good so the more we do the more we're given that way we can kind of find more things and uh, and be successful hopefully at elevating the purpose within things 
Wonderful. I love that. The more we can make, the more we can make spiritual out of physical, the more physical, the more material we're given to do more with. And we're here to like to accomplish things in the world, not like just to sit back and rest. All right, I made enough money or I made enough. You need to go make more money so you can do more with it, do more good with it and, you know, get keep working, whatever it is. Something I learned early on, there's no word in the Hebrew language for retirement. To us, retirement is when God fires us and pulls our soul out of our body and says, now you're retired. While you're here, it's action. It's doing things. Be productive. Contribute to my world. We, we started off, Daniel, talking about you know, the, the influence of the Hasidic movement on all the Torah. And when you were talking about how we, we get together and we dance with the Torah on Simchat Torah, and we were celebrating what our accomplishments in Torah, but ideally when we're, we're doing it all together and we're dancing, we're also looking at everyone else and their contributions in Torah because it's so amazing we see all these different schools of thought that have developed over the millennia. I bring in all these unique ideas that all these different disciplines brought and they, I see them all synthesizing now. Like I know Rabbi Yokov Wolby was telling me when his grandfather was bringing Musar to the yeshiva world, that was a new thing. And was met with some resistance. You know, just like you were saying with a lot of the teachings from the Siddiq movement, like the Baal Shem Tov, ran into some resistance. The Jewish people are called, uh, in, in some parts of the Torah, Tzivos Hashem, the troops of Hashem, troops of God. But also can be read as the colors of Hashem. We're not supposed to be monochromatic. We're, the, the Jewish people have a tremendous amount of variety, and we, we each bring important, different push and pull in different directions and something amazing and unique. And so maybe the early antagonism actually helped the Hasidic movement develop into the, the shape that it did. And also today you'll find so much intermingled to uh, everything that is even non-Hasidic texts. Many of the ideas and many of the practices have become commonplace. One of the, one of the most important ideas of the Hasidic movement was that God is in everything and that the world is really orchestrated by divine providence in all the details, not just the big picture. So some of these things, is, are, these, is, these are mainstream mainstream Jewish ideas now. And so I think that it's the, definitely true that this is a, 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 something that is now accessible to anyone and is not an a active uh, you know, disagreement. You know, I've also heard the Jewish people described as limbs from the same body we all come from the same soul and all these different contributions to torah even sometimes they were there was some conflict in the beginning i believe has sort of developed torah overall in the world i know you told me you don't like to be called rabbi that's why i've been calling you daniel but you're definitely one of my rabbis now it was a absolute pleasure i hope we can do this again daniel and I would love to learn from you more. And I'm sure the audience is going to want to as well. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored. And it was a, a joy to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, 
or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.